This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secret and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Conor Matchett. I'm the deputy political editor at the paper. With me, as always, is Alistair Grant, um, our political editor, Alex Brown, our Westminster correspondent, and a new face or voice for, for you at home um, is our political reporter, fresh from our live news team, Hannah Brown. Good morning and welcome. It's a fresh Monday. We've survived storms. How is everyone doing? Good, yeah, pretty good. Really good, <laughs> I can tell. With a high energy. <laughs> we've, all, we've all made it. We have a new recruit. Uh, the gender balance is slightly better. <laughs> we're feeling a bit more progressive and invigorated and younger. Uh, this is fantastic. I'm excited to find out what a TikTok is and what live reporting means. God, I feel like the world um, is falling on my shoulders here. So, What is a YouTube? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a good question, Alex, and something that is probably best for other people to answer, not for me. Um, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting being the token woman on this. Yeah, welcome. Th- th- thank you for coming along. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, keep quiet. Let's um, move on. <laughs> it's It's... It's been a, a quiet week in Scottish politics um, with, with Holyrood off on recess. But in, in classic Scottish politics form, one of the big big stories of the week occurred pretty much on Twitter, um, almost in its entirely, in the discussion and response to abuse described by the former Scotland editor, Sarah Smith. She basically told um, the Reuters Institute in a paper about how devolution has affected reporting in Scotland and the rest of the country. But she she described the abuse that she'd received from people during this. And of course, she was, she's was she been around for a few years. She's now moved on to be the North America editor at the BBC. But she, would, she, she told Reuters that people would, quote, roll their car windows down as they drive past me in the street to ask me, what effing lies you're going to be telling on the TV tonight, you effing lying B. She called this vitriolic attention. And she also said she pretty much stopped tweeting for fear of attracting the shit I can live without. Alistair, this report of abuse kind of 
took on a bit of a life of its own last week. But it doesn't shock, does it, that someone in her position received that level of hatred? I mean, it doesn't shock in the way that we're quite used to now, a kind of public realm, a kind of where online abuse is accepted if you're in the public eye in any way, if you're a journalist, if you're a politician, and particularly for women. And Sarah Smith, I think her her comments are just completely depressing and embarrassing for Scotland as well. I mean, the abuse she suffered sounds horrendous. I think it's interesting as well, or equally as depressing, what she was saying about the BBC and you know looking ahead to if there is a second independence referendum, kind of enormous scrutiny that the BBC would come under. News reports would be kind of weaponized and politicized by both sides, and I think you could you could really see that happening if there is a second referendum. Just this temperature is rising and. People kind of attacking journalists for basically doing their jobs. And, you know, politicians get it get it just as bad, if not worse. So it's, it's not something that is just particular to journalists. But as you say, it took on a life of its own. It was something that was debated on Twitter. We had the depressing spectacle of elected politicians, people like James Dornan, the SNP MSP, who basically tweeted and implied that Sarah Smith, uh, the abuse, she'd kind of imagined it. I think he called it imaginary woes and later apologised for it. But... The fact he said it in the first place is extremely depressing. You had people like the former SNP politician Phil Boswell, who I think called her effectively a traitor. It's just, it's something that, it's a problem that Scotland has, like a lot of the world, to be honest. We've, we've got this really kind of divided politics, the impact that online abuse has had on that. And I think, not to pick up my own piece or anything, but I wrote about this in the, in the Scotsman today on page two, if you pick up a paper. I think if you, if you think about the kind of future of political debate in Scotland, we've got the independence debate heating up again in some ways, because even if many people don't believe a second independence referendum is going to happen anytime soon, there is no doubt that the debate will heat up in the sense we're going to have a constitutional clash, we're going to have the Scottish government pushing ahead with plans for a referendum, the UK government refusing to play ball. And the debate we have around that is worth talking about. You know, we, we often examine the issues in independence and what, what they might mean, but the way we talk about this is also worth examining. And I think it's something that if there is a second independence referendum, we really have to try and deal with. Absolutely. I, I suppose uh, that one of the aspects to what Sarah Smith was saying is that a lot of the abuse is is quite misogynistic in in nature. It's something we've seen down in London as well with, with the abuse that Laura Koonsberg has received during her time as political editor. And she's obviously now on, on the way out in that job as well. Hannah, I, I, I don't mean to pick on you as token woman, but women tend to get this far worse than than, than men. Well, the short answer, yes. Um, and something that's also really interesting about this whole kind of misogyny argument, even the people that do realise and do understand that obviously misogyny is at play, there is still this, well, there's still this language around shock and it being shocking Whereas for a lot of women who are in the media or even just women who have public roles where their names are out there, it's a basic part of your everyday life. It's just part and parcel of, of the job, this misogyny. And when I see what the, the comments levelled at Sarah Smith, I'm not shocked. I just I just see it as normal and I just and that's the depressing and frustrating reality of it. And it's something that I think a lot of women have to face and they see it as a have to, a need, rather than something that just shouldn't happen. And yeah, the interesting points that Alistair was making about it being like affecting the world of politics are so totally true, but it has 
much bigger societal consequences if this is how we treat and respect, well, disrespect women. It's really easy to kind of snub off a woman as the V word that you mentioned, Connor, that was levelled. It's something that's levelled at a woman and is never levelled at a man. If you called a man that name, it wouldn't have the same consequences or the same impact because we dismiss women so much by that word. And it's a way of seeing women not as complex or interesting characters. It's a way of kind of dismissing women from the overall debates, from political, social, public life. And yeah, we need to really address that. And how we address that is something that is, yeah, that we need to see in our political and social policies and life and how we educate people is so important. Alistair, you you alluded to it. But it's worth reading what James Dornan uh, apologized, his apology at the very least. He suggested that she had, that Sarah Smith had imaginary woes. And his apology, I think, was remarkably mealy mouthed and quite pathetic, which was language is important in this. So I apologize for my earlier comments that made it seem as though I believed the abuse Sarah Smith has suffered was imaginary. Goes on to say that misogynistic abuse of women in the public eye is never acceptable. And if we want to tackle the issue, then we all need to recognise the problem is on all sides and all countries. It's not really an apology, is it? No, it's not. I mean, like you say, it's it's mealy-mouthed. I mean, I think it's, it's incredibly depressing that an elected politician tweeted that. And I think politicians have a responsibility to uh, kind of set the tone of the debate. Uh, and I think it's something that as we move forward, as we're saying into kind of conversations around independence, that they, we need to pay, to pay particular attention to. And I think to be fair to them, it's something that the people like Nicola Sturgeon, a lot of the party leaders are, are quite conscious of. But yeah, we just really can't have uh, elected politicians fueling this kind of thing. Yeah, Nic- Nic- Nicola Sturgeon, you know, herself was asked about it, I think, um, over the weekend. And, you know, she said that she condemned the abuse unreservedly. She said she is no truck with anybody. She doesn't ha- consider herself to have much, if anything, in common with anybody who had heard abuse at Sarah Smith or any other journalist. And she said that she's seen comments from other elected politicians suggesting that the the abuse that Sarah Smith had received is somehow her fault and her responsibility. She says that she's got a responsibility to call it out. And instead of politicians on the other side of the debate saying it's her fault when it's coming from people professing to be on my side or vice versa, we should all come together to marginalise it and force it out of politics completely. Now... I mean, she's obviously going to say that, but she does have a responsibility above and beyond simply just, you know, saying that she condemns it unreservedly. James Dornan is one of her own MSPs. Um, Gavin Newlands is one of her own MPs. It's clearly there is a culture within the SNP and within Scottish nationalism generally that is pretty, pretty hideous. Well, I mean, I think... I think there is definitely a culture among some people in the in the kind of pro yes the nationalist side where abuse has become common. But then they would also point out, or, or the SNP would point out that there are plenty of unionist trolls in social media as well that abuse people and uh, kind of fling around insults. So I think it's it's a problem on both sides. It's a problem. It's a wider problem, as I was saying. It's a, it's a problem around the world. I mean, we've seen it the kind of divisions uh, that have fueled American politics in recent years. It's something that we saw in Brexit as well, the kind of tone of debate around Brexit. I think when you have these divisive politics, and I think particularly you saw this around the referendum just because it's by its nature binary, it's it's a yes, no choice. You tend to, it does in some ways encourage tribalism 
and it encourages people to to make that kind of that kind of easy choice of us versus them that can feed into this situation that we have where where online abuse is is flourishing but it is a wider problem and i think it's it's important to say that because i don't think you can address it if you take it if you take it as a problem that that is just the problem of one party or just the problem of one political movement it's just so much bigger than that and i think that makes it harder to combat and to be honest with you i mean i don't want to sound depressing about this but I honestly don't know how we combat online abuse. I don't even know if it is possible anymore. I think in some ways we've kind of crossed the Rubicon. It's become so much a part of life that, uh, as as Hannah was saying, it's just it's just expected now. Um, and I know I saw on the, on Twitter at the weekend organisations like Women in Journalism were saying that basically the the kind of courses they do around how to handle this kind of thing are, are among the most popular things they do. So it's just something that is accepted now as part of political life. It shouldn't be, but it is. And also one of the worst things about it is that the damage has been done, right? He's issued the uh, pretend apology, which doesn't really take ownership of the fact that he had to go at a woman for no reason. And that's it. It doesn't matter. Supporters who are already, not not just S&P supporters, because it's not, it's, I, I don't mean it broadly, but there's a specific few who will decide, actually, he was right. And I agree with that. And it will convince people who already support him of the same thing. His apology does nothing. And the damage is done. And this and this always happens. People say something horrible and then they have to delete it, but then it doesn't matter. It's already taken hold. When um, a Tory conference last year, Laura um, Laura Koonsberg was, did not have a dance-off with Michael Gove or a rap battle, but a journalist, presumably desperate for Twitter clout, tweeted that it happened because obviously if people are all singing along in the same room, that's a rap battle rather than people singing along in the same room. Uh, and then rather than, and then obviously this exploded, you had all these uh, far left accounts uh, and just people generally having a huge go at Laura Koonsberg. They already have a huge issue with her. And rather than tweet out an immediate, I was wrong, uh, which I believe, you know, he was, what well, was obviously should do because it was obvious and everyone knew that wasn't the case. I think he then set a couple of days later, screenshot, turned off replies, a picture from the uh, Telegraph uh, daily you know, newsletter, or whatever, saying, oh, we got this bit wrong rather than actually correct it himself. And the damage is already done. It doesn't matter. I mean, I remember tweeting about it at the time and I was getting randoms having a go at me going, oh, you're just protecting her. We all know what Laura's like. She's a, you know, she doesn't care. She's a big Tory. She she loves Michael Gove and the thing. And the damage is already done. We let these things take hold because we either don't get rid of them quickly enough if we make a mistake, which, you know, which you can do, or we don't apologise properly. And then people are already so excited to be able to hate a woman that they have a pre uh, preformed view of it doesn't matter. It's positive enforcement. They'll choose what to believe. It doesn't matter that everyone else will say, that's not okay, that's not true, she isn't that. If someone they support has said it, then they will go along with that because it fits the narrative they already want. And, I, and, and you're so right to say that I don't know how we fix it because I don't know how you change the narrative of people who already have a view of a woman and then hate them anyway for being women and how you talk them around and going, look, we've got to confront the fact of why is it not just their view, it's not just their views, but you're letting their gender inform the way that you're treating them. How is this happening and you've got to stop? Because these are people who think, probably think they're progressive, right? The SNP consider themselves to be a progressive. I mean, they probably some of them would think they're a left wing party. They're not a particularly left wing party, comparatively, but they think they're the good guys. And then you see behaviour like this, and you just think, well, this is straight. It's straight. It's exactly what the vote leave people did to. Uh, and I'm not going to. I can't remember. I can't pronounce her last name. Caroline. Goodwaller, if you, if you recall, she, she was doing good stories during Brexit about vote leave and it would be gendered and Guido and everyone else go after her and call her Caroline Codswallop uh, and belittle her for being a woman. And that wouldn't happen to a male journalist having a go. 
I think that's a really important thing that you brought up, Alex, especially with confusing language of disagreement and disrespect. You can, I think that's often confused with women, especially in these roles where you disagree with them, ergo you disrespect them, whereas that would just never be shown towards a man. Yeah, and it's it, it was interesting as well. I think you, if you looked at the responses to a lot of the Scottish journalists who were tweeting about the abuse that, that Sarah Smith had got in particular, a lot of the replies from nationalist people on Twitter was, well, she deserved it, followed by, you know, often more abuse, which kind of makes Sarah Smith's point for her to an extent in that, you know, the the you can't really attack someone for talking about the abuse and then suggest that the abuse is imaginary or is not as bad as it could have been because she was wrong and, wrong and did a bad job when she was up here anyway. And you think, you know, I mean, we, we all presumably, I think, <laughs> in our line of work have had, had abuse. Last week I was called a pedo by someone random in my in my DMs as well as the enemy of the people. I don't know if you guys want to share any of your favourite bits of abuse that, that has, has, has come on Twitter? Probably the most brutal thing anyone ever said to me is I was doing a, a Facebook Live video on uh, for the Edinburgh Evening News and someone just commented saying, Shan shirt. <laughs> it, just, it was just completely brutal. Oh, well, I never wore that shirt again. No, but I, I think it's seri- in seriousness. I, I, have, I have had abuse online, but I, I don't think I get it anywhere near as bad as... I think, for example, if I was a woman, I think I'd get it a lot worse. I think in general, men on Twitter, male political reporters, male politicians just don't get anywhere near as, as bad. And I think the abuse often isn't as personalised. I think when you see some of the co- comments that, for example, a high-profile female journalist like Laura Kunzberg gets, I just don't think a man in her position would get the same level of abuse. And I think it's, it's also important to say that I think sometimes when you have this debate, you know, people kind of assume that you're you're kind of uh, you're saying that the media can't be criticised and you know you can't kind of talk back to journalists and that that's totally not true. I think the media should be criticised. It should be scrutinised. And there's loads of things that the media and journalists do that aren't good. And you know there's all sorts of different kinds of journalism out there. Some journalism is better than other forms of journalism, and we should be able to have that debate. But it's just having that debate without descending into personalised abuse is just uh, is is the crucial issue. The interesting thing that you brought up there, Alistair, is that you looked at the comment section. Now, I know a lot of, well, women who are in journalism just don't look at the comment section and just don't look at things when they post Facebook Lives. And that's a major issue of this. Women feel locked out of a lot of spaces because of the abuse. It's not, as you said, censorship. It's just common respect. And it is excluding women from these spaces. I mean, I was just talking to a pal who's also a woman who works in journalism and she felt completely like she couldn't access Twitter at all for the whole of last week because of the abuse that she was getting actually on a post calling out abuse. So it's it's things like that. It's like unwanted attention. I think there's a big complex within a lot of men as well of wanting to be the knights in shining armour and stay and rescue and come to the rescue of so many women in journalism by saying, oh, I'm here for you. Let me comfort you and all that and stuff. Whereas women are very, as we know, capable and self-sufficient. They don't need a white knight or whatever. They just need someone to understand and they need yeah, that space to kind of be able to access these spaces and not feel harassed. 
It's a huge blow to the soft boys of Instagram. Uh, <laughs> um, I just want to say about the comments. I love checking out the comments. Uh, our comment section really uh, dislike me, and I but it doesn't really rattle me. I find it quite funny. The, the little names they come up with me they're amusing and i will i'll frequently post them on my instagram story to be like i've made another fan when i appreciate for other people it's probably worse i mean i've got death threats and i get called all manner of words that we can't say on a podcast before you know at 10 37 the time of recording it would be immoral but that doesn't really bother me whereas i can you know i think there's a, a more of a threat and a a loads intent when they're talking to women there's a sexual threat when it's with women isn't there the real sexual threat yeah exactly absolutely and i think i think it's uh it's a lot harder i think hannah as you as you allude to for often for women to have a an approach because i mean modern day journalism kind of requires you to be quite online and to be in these spaces where abuse is almost a free-for-all i mean plenty of facebook lives that if, for, for listeners who don't know what that is, you know, that's going to a scene of a crash or a fire or whatever um, and doing a live video from the scene. You, you know, you, you can see the abuse and the and, and often the kind of unwanted sexual comments if, if it's a woman doing it. If you're on Twitter, you get the same sort of thing. And it requires you to be online in a way that, you know, arguably, you know, 10, year, 10 15 years on from the advent of social media, we should really have better ways of dealing with this sort of thing from a societal point of view and yet we just don't and and this 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 abuse is allowed to allowed to go pretty much unpunished apart from the odd one that goes all the way to the police and 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 the courts we'll move on from from the fun and exciting topic of abuse and talk a little bit about what's going to happen this week in politics in particular with covid-19 alex uh, at time of recording, Boris Johnson hasn't stood up and said anything about the end of COVID, but he will have done by the time this podcast goes out. Give us a rundown of what he's expected to say. It's all over bar the shooting. He's, he's currently he'll be meeting with the cabinet um, for a talk. There's going to be a statement around 15.30 on Monday. And basically the law requiring people with COVID to isolate will be ditched. So if you test positive, uh, basically carry on you'll probably be advised stay home but you're not going to have to so if you have a disease that's killed you know more than 100,000 people in this country don't worry about it just just crack on um and so like none of it's legally binding and also we're going to stop getting free access to tests we already knew that but that will be confirmed so if you are worried that you have a virus that has killed more than 100,000 people in this country and you're like hey i want to go see my nan you're gonna have to pay for the privilege because the government no longer will be supporting uh, your ability to check yourself before you wreck yourself there will be some available for the over 80s which is great for them but you would think you know, not to be too presumptuous, but if you're over 80, you may be close to an environment where you're, you already have protections in place. Yeah. So, I mean, it's ridiculous. This is fant- like, it's fantastic news for Tory MPs. Uh, the Prime Minister is only doing this because everyone in his own party hates him and he's about to get done over for breaking the law because he's a big liar and we all know it. Um, this is a huge uh, deflection from that. The scientific evidence does not say, let's all just crack on and get on with it. And there's a huge difference between living with COVID and ignoring COVID. It's one of those things where you're like, have I read that right? Are we really just going to stop? You can just go out with COVID and carry on? Like, if I met up with someone, they're like, oh, by the way, I've got COVID. I would I would not be that cool about it, but that's fine. So MPs, MPs will be able to go into Parliament with a disease and be like, all right, how's it going? Shake hands, a little hug. 
it is a bit baffling, isn't it? Because I mean, I've, for listeners' interest, I am my girlfriend currently has COVID. I've been testing negative for four days in a row, and yet in the new rules, she can go out and do whatever she likes, and 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 so could I, which seems a bit a bit crazy at the end of it. Um, Alistair, what what's the potential impact of this in Scotland? It's mostly going to be around testing. Yeah, so I mean, the things around self-isolation that Boris Johnson is announcing are for England, but as with everything else in COVID, all this stuff will have an impact in Scotland. And I think particularly if he scales back the availability of free lateral flow tests, I think it was interesting when he was on uh, the BBC Sunday morning show, I think he said that uh, kind of free testing or quote-unquote free testing had cost the UK £2 billion in January alone. So it's a huge amount of money. And if he scales that back, then that's going to leave Scotland in a position where you know Scotland can't afford to keep on testing, keep on providing tests the way they are available now. If the UK decides, the UK government decides not to do that, so it will have it will have an impact. We don't quite know what it is because we don't know what the you know at the time of recording we don't know the details of what Boris Johnson is going to be announcing. But as with every, everything else, these things have an impact in the devolved nations. So it's it's one to watch. Hamza Youssef said, um, I think last week that. He was keen for the government down south not to pull the rug from underneath Scotland. Um, Hannah, he said a bit more about that, didn't he, recently? It's the position of the SNP up here that, as Alistair says, that ending these sorts of precautions, the very basic sorts of COVID precautions we've had since early March 2020, would be a bad thing. What did he say on, on the radio? Yeah, so... Humza Yusuf was speaking, I think, yesterday, uh, Sunday morning, that would be. Um, and he was saying that the UK government must honour its commitment to ensure that COVID testing remains funded. So this is something that he is, you know, saying at the moment. But we will hear more from Nicholas Sturgeon about the, I mean, it's not as coolly named as the Boris Johnson living with COVID plan, but we've got the strategic framework coming up on Tuesday. So yeah, not as cool. Uh, I don't know if you can see, but Cora's doing a, a cool, cool man sign right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basically we can expect them to, the still doing it, uh, the SNP to kind of, or the Scottish government to keep on levelling that line, especially given that what we're kind of expecting to hear from Boris Johnson about testing, probably demanding funds would be something that they would expect from the UK government and something that, because yeah, like like Alistair said, how, how will they get the money? And it's also setting up procurement for COVID testing will be something else as well. So Humza Yusuf was quite strong in that line uh, yesterday and it's something that we could probably expect Sturgeon coming out with tomorrow as well. I thought it was quite interesting as well in the, the interview that Boris Johnson did over the weekend where he was basically asked, can you guarantee that, that restrictions won't be brought in again? And he made clear that he doesn't want restrictions to be brought in again, but I think he used words along the lines of, you know, you've got to be humble in the face of nature. So he's not ruling it out. And I think the context around this, you know, we've discussed this on the podcast before, but the context is really important because obviously there is a perception, and it's certainly something the SNP have said, it's something that Labour have said as well, that part of the reason for this announcement by Boris Johnson is to distract from, you know, the ongoing Partygate scandal in Downing Street, the ongoing kind of mess in Downing Street. So there's definitely a perception that, you know, this announcement, particularly the announcement to kind of get rid of the self-isolation rules, is something that will go down well on the Tory backbenches. You know, this move to personal responsibility away from, I think, what Boris Johnson called the kind of state-mandated rules, being compelled to do things and place more of the emphasis 
on personal responsibility. You know, that's something that the Tory backbenchers will will like. It's a very Tory policy. So it's interesting the context. It'll be interesting to see what happens. And it's also interesting that he's not ruling out returning to a situation where they have to impose restrictions on a on a kind of statewide basis. If we look a bit further forward, um, unless Alex, you've got something to add. Well, I just mean the Queen can get back out there. Doesn't have to, she doesn't have to worry. She can, uh, I don't mean in, date, in a dating sense, I should clarify. I just mean she can crack on with her work. I know that the Daily Mail on Monday was like, she's leading the way. She's going to keep on working. What does that all include? Some telephone calls. She watched her horse run the Grand National. And that sort of relatable approach to work that I think we should all follow. So if any of you guys get COVID and you're not working as hard as the Queen, I, I will be filing a complaint, okay? <laughs> Um, if we throw it forward a little bit, Alistair, I mean, it's it's still only February. I mean, we had Scotland's budget bill passed only two weeks ago. Kate Forbes made it very clear in that budget that there was little to no margin for error, that almost all of Scotland's cash had been spent. The addition of the council tax rebate has increased that pressure given the According to the SNP, there was no net increase in, in the budget position with the final supplementary estimates, which I think are still to be completely finalised, but um, that's the expectation. The suggestion that Scotland can pay for these tests is mad. I mean, they'd have to find money where money doesn't exist. And presumably, that's going to force Nicola Sturgeon and Hamza Youssef and John Swinney into a bit of a difficult position when they realise that I'm, I'm sure they're well aware, but when they realise they're going to have to tell that to the Scottish population after another month of saying, we need these. Well, it will, but I think, you know, I think reading between the lines, the SNP has already kind of accepted when you listen to what people like Ian Blackford are saying, that if the UK government changes the rules on the availability of free COVID tests, that, you know, that will have an effect in Scotland and they won't be able to provide them in the same way they were. You know, whether or not they can come to some, some kind of other arrangement or whether or not the UK government has some kind of other arrangement with them. We just don't know yet, but it will have an effect. And like you're saying, budgets are incredibly tight. We've already got so many pressures around the cost of living crisis and the extra measures both the UK and Scottish governments have introduced in an attempt to kind of help people through that. Uh, you know, we've got the, the kind of rising national insurance in April, the rising energy bills. There's just so many other problems that will take up time and a lot of money. Um, so yeah, it's something that I think it's safe to say that they, they couldn't afford to to keep it going the way it is now, but we'll just have to see how they how they deal with that. It's an opportunity, isn't it, for the SNP's favourite grievance approach to UK government policy? It is an opportunity, but I also think, you know, to be fair to them on this degree, on this issue, sorry, you know, they are right in the sense that the UK government making a decision like this just has, you know, it has a, an impact on the devolved nations just automatically. It just does. And there's just no way around that. So in a sense... They are correct in that. And it's just how, how they deal with that will be the will be the crucial thing. Absolutely. Well, Boris Johnson, um, by the time this podcast will have gone out, will have spoken to Parliament and will have done a press conference in the afternoon uh, or in the evening. And uh, on on the day of this podcast's release, Nicola Sturgeon will stand in front of the Holyrood Chamber and give her update on the exciting, excitingly named strategic framework for handling COVID-19 in Scotland. That's all we've got time for otherwise. Uh, thank you very, very much, everyone, for joining us this week. And thank you very much at home for listening. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. 